Testament. Please remain standing. Read from Psalm 119, beginning in verse 65 and going through verse 72. Psalm 119, 65 through 72. Remember, as I read this section, the Teth section of Psalm 119, this is God's word. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Let's pray once more. Lord, we heard and we plead with you once again to speak to us through it by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I want to begin this morning with a little basic theology review and using, uh, and, and in order to get into this basic theology review, I think it's important for us to reflect a little bit on an account we have in Mark's gospel. It's recorded for us in Mark chapter 10 of Jesus' encounter with a rich young man. It's a familiar account, I'm sure, to you, but I'll just remind you of a few of the details. It begins by setting the scene. Uh, Jesus is setting out on a journey. A man comes, he runs to Jesus, he kneels down before him, and he asks this question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, as you know, as the conversation progresses, Jesus goes on to speak to him about the law of God, the commandments, which the man says he has kept. And and then Jesus challenges him on that uh, by by telling him to sell all that he has and to give it to the poor and to follow him. And Of course, you know those words, that sort of laconic ending after the encounter, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And then the disciples, seeing all of this, are themselves somewhat conflicted, and they ask Jesus, how is this even possible then that someone could be saved? And then Jesus, of course, says, well, there, uh, with, with man it is impossible, but not with God. And then he tells them all the things that those who follow him will gain. But just before entering into this conversation with this rich young man that ends in this sad and sorrowful way with him leaving Jesus forever, as far as we can tell, separated from his only hope for eternal life, Jesus asks him this question, and in asking this question, he introduces the theological theme that I want us to reflect on, because the man, of course, addresses Jesus as good teacher. And before Jesus goes into this discourse about the law and about the man's obedience or lack thereof, He asks what I think is a framing question for the whole encounter or introduces a theme that's a framing question for the whole encounter. And in fact, it's really the framing theme for this section of Psalm 119. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. 
And there is a sense in which, as Jesus begins to probe into this man's state, into the state of his heart, what Jesus says here becomes clearer. It's set in bold relief against everything else that happens, because what becomes clear is, if nothing else, this man really didn't appreciate that statement. No one is good but God alone, because as we know, he, he was uh, more interested in, in, in having the good, the, the so-called good of his wealth, than he was even in, in having eternal life offered through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this, this theme of the goodness of God, no one is good but God alone, as Jesus says, uh, this theme of divine goodness is a is a profound theme that is found throughout the scriptures. In fact, Herman Bovink puts it this way, Holy Scripture is a hymn of praise to the goodness of God. I wonder if you were even filling in the blank to the end of that sentence. The Holy Scripture is a hymn of praise to what of God? Would you have said the goodness of God? But indeed, God's goodness is a profound and even a central theme of the whole scripture. And and it's important because, of course, what the Bible teaches us is is that God himself is the, the original good, the source of all goodness. He is goodness itself, we might say. And all created goodness, Charnock says, is a rivulet from this fountain. In other words, anything that is good, in a sense, is is derived from God. The, the scriptures teach every good and perfect gift comes from above. And that, of course, is the other important theme to note. Not only is God goodness itself, but that means that all goodness comes from God and is given, in many cases, to his people. Now, if you think about this theme and you think about how it's played out in the Bible, you see that it's actually right there on the very first pages of Genesis. Because after God finishes his work of creation in six days, uh, what he declares about this creation that he has made is that it is good and, and then very good, he says. And then you remember as as Genesis 2 zooms in on the creation of Adam and Eve and gives us greater detail about that which was already summarized on the sixth day, what we read is that God sees Adam and says, it's, it's not good that man should be alone. But, but then what does God do? Well, he, he addresses that lack of goodness, we might say, that not goodness by, by, by creating from Adam this wife for him. And, and, and Genesis 2 ends with their, their union in marriage. And, and, and that, that then sets the stage for, for the terrible tragedy of the fall. Because what do Adam and Eve do? Well, certainly they disobey the law of God. God had given them a command and they disobey it. But, but we might almost say at a deeper level, if, if such language is possible, at a deeper level, what they do is they they doubt fundamentally the goodness of God, because the whole nature of their temptation was to say that God was holding out on them, that it wasn't very good, that what God had given them wasn't good, and there was something better out there apart from what God had 
provided. Now, I think just, just at the outset, before we even address this particular text, and as I said, this is the theme of this particular text, but, but as we think about this notion, no one is good but God alone, holy scripture is a hymn of praise to the goodness of the Lord, we might want to ask ourselves, the question that Genesis 2 and 3 introduced to us, uh, how is it in your own life that you challenge or doubt the goodness of God? Because you see, you can, you can be sure of this. Anytime, anytime you sin, anytime you, you violate the commands of God in thought or in word or in, in action, you're, you're, you're also saying... That God, no, you're, you're not good. What you've given actually isn't goodness itself. Goodness itself is found apart from you. I, I need to grab something for myself to gain that kind of goodness. In a sense, you're doing something very similar to what we see Adam and Eve doing in Genesis chapter 3, challenging the goodness of God. Now, why all this review? about God's goodness, about divine goodness. Well, it's because that is the theme of this section of Psalm 119. In fact, that word, that Hebrew word tov, good, is the, the word that is used to begin five of these verses. It's in verse 65. It's the beginning of verse 65. It's the first word in verse 68. It's the first word, word in verse 71. It's the first word in verse 72. And in verse 68, it's used in a different form, although it is the first word of verse 68. It's also used again in verse 68, because in verse 68, of course, we have this remarkable phrase that essentially is what Jesus himself says to the rich young man, you are good, and you do good. And, you know, the way in which it's used in this psalm is, this could not be said in, in an absolute way of anyone else except God. We could say that someone perhaps does good, and we would have reasons for that, explanations, the grace of God working through them and that sort of thing. But, but what he says is, you, in fact, are good, and you do good. Now, how does this theme of the goodness of God play out in this section? Well, I want you to see how it's structured. It begins with a declaration in verse 65 of God's personal goodness to his servant, Look at it, it's very easy to see. You have dealt well, and that, of course, again, is, a, is, a, is this word, good. That's how it begins. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. See, what we see right at the outset is it is one thing to declare God's goodness in the abstract. It's one thing to answer a question on a theology exam about the goodness of God, to, to write it down somewhere. But the psalmist begins this section by declaring God's goodness for himself. He declares the, the, the fact that not only is God good, that he will say that, of course, in verse 68, but not only is God good, but God does good. He, 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 he deals well with his servant. Now, how can he say this, or why can he say this? Well, 
in a certain sense, all people on the earth should be able to say something like this, at least the first part. They might not use the word servant, but God is, is good in some way. In fact, Psalm 145.9 says, says it quite clearly. God is good to all. In Acts 14, you'll remember that Paul and Barnabas are at Lystra, and they say, He did good to you, gave you rain from heaven in, in its season. And he's speaking to uh, men and women who were unconverted, who weren't uh, in any way part of God's visible covenant, these are just people who lived in rebellion against God and worshiped idols. And he says, God did good to you nonetheless. And, and, and if you want proof of it, just look at the fact that the rain keeps falling on you. So the Psalms say that, and we read that throughout the Bible. In one sense, of course, all people could and should declare the goodness of God to them. But the psalmist here says something else because he calls himself a servant of the Lord. And, and this, in a sense, elevates what he's saying, because although it's true that God is good to everyone on earth, God has displayed his goodness to them in giving them life and breath and rain. Uh, the psalmists tell us that in particular, God is good and does good to his servants. You remember what Psalm 84, 11 says, no good thing does he withhold from the one who walks uprightly? And this is what the psalmist can declare personally. You have dealt well. You have done good to your servant. And, you know, this is what it means to be a servant of the Lord, in fact. Psalm 16 says this, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And the psalmist is saying that and calling himself a servant of the Lord. You know how this is put in Romans chapter 8, where Paul talks about the comfort we can have being in Christ. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to the, for those who are called according to his purpose. And if that declaration, that personal declaration at the beginning of this section were not enough, look at the second part of verse 65. The psalmist declares, not only have you dealt well with your servant, but all of this is according to your word. You've done it. I can testify that you've done it. I can testify as your servant, you've never been anything but good to me, and you've never operated in a way that was anything less than good, because after all, you are goodness itself, and all of this is spelled out in your word. You've done everything you said you would do, and you've made it clear that this is the kind of God you are. Charles Spurgeon, when commenting on this last clause puts it this way, the kindness of the Lord, or we might say the goodness of the Lord, is, however, no chance matter. He promised to do so, and he has done it according to his word. What a glorious testimony the psalmist gives in this verse. I, I, hope, I hope that this is the testimony that you could give 
about your service to Jesus Christ, how God has played things out in your life. I, I, I would hope that at least at some point in your life, you have occasion to describe the whole of your Christian experience, even in this way, as the psalmist summarizes it here. What does it mean for me to be a Christian? Well, we could answer that by talking about the convictions that we have, the, the content of our faith. We could, we could talk about it from any number of angles, but, but the way the psalmist describes it is this. Well, what it means is, I, you, you have dealt well with me uh, your, as your servant according to your word. Is that, is that what you communicate about your Christian experience? Is that the way it plays out in your thinking as you think about what it means to be a servant of God? Or do you think about it as certain rules you need to keep or even certain things that you have to hang on to in your mind? I don't know, for the psalmist, it's God's goodness displayed to his servant exactly as his word said it would be. It's fundamental to his whole experience. And because it's fundamental to his experience, because he recognizes that in his life, if he's honest, when he sees things from the correct perspective, he knows that God's goodness has been displayed to him personally, not simply generally, but to him personally, exactly as his word has said it would be, then then the natural implication, really this makes up the rest of the psalm, is is that what the psalmist then asks for is that the Lord would instruct him and teach him in goodness. And that's why the word good is used so many times throughout the rest of this section, because after declaring the Lord's goodness to him, according to his word, what does he say next in verse 66? Since since you are God, since you are the source of all goodness, I want to learn goodness from you. And I want to learn more about your statutes from you as well, because your goodness is according to your word. So this is verse 66, teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. In a sense, what the psalmist is crying out to the Lord for, the Lord has been good. Lord, take me to goodness school. Teach me about goodness. Teach me about your word. Teach me about what it means to to walk in goodness and continue to guide me in that path. You know, there's a little surprise when you open the door to goodness school, as the psalmist does in verse 66. And this is this is counterintuitive, but significant, because while in the big picture, the big theme of this psalm is the goodness of God, what we find from the psalmist is when When he asks God to teach him about goodness and and therefore teach him about his word, when he asks God to do that, what what ends up happening is he experiences affliction and suffering. So in other words, if we want to think of it in academic terms, the, the, the psalmist gets the syllabus for goodness school and what he sees on it is affliction. What he sees on it is suffering. Look at this in verse 67. He talks about the fact 
that he was afflicted. And before he was afflicted, he went astray. But now that he has been afflicted, I keep your word. How has the psalmist learned about the word of God according to verse 67? He's learned about the word of God through affliction. Or look at verse 69. Another lesson in this school. The insolence smear me with lies. But with my whole heart, I keep your precepts. Look at verse 70 in the description of those who are smearing him with lies. Their, their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. And this, this phrase, it's a difficult phrase and different commentators. Actually, it seems as if different commentators in different eras have different ways of, of explaining this unusual turn of phrase in verse 70. It, it means either something about the fact that they, they don't feel anything, uh, they're just completely immune to any concern for God, or it, it could be, and some of the older commentators suggest this because of the reference to fatness, that that's their delight. They delight in these good things of the world, but not in God. But either way, they're ignoring the Lord, these people who are against him. In other words, in other words, what, what the psalmist teaches us is that, is that God's goodness, when we set down to learn it, when he starts teaching us his goodness and training us in his goodness and training us in his word, the way he does that is through affliction and suffering. It is through difficulties, through opposition, is through the insolent coming into the psalmist's life. Now, this, this should shift our perspective of what it even means to experience the goodness of God. Because if I were to ask you, how is it that you know God is good? How, how is it that you personally, as God's servant, know God is good? You would quite naturally list a, a whole range of things that all of us in the room would agree are good things that all of us wish for, that all of us want to experience, that all of us enjoy experiencing. But when the psalmist talks about learning God's goodness and being trained to know God's goodness more fully, what he points to is affliction and suffering. Now, if we zoom out from Psalm 119, Maybe this shouldn't come as such a shock to us. Because, of course, if you, you know, if you look at the whole Bible, the Bible says a great deal about suffering. The Bible tells us that suffering is to be expected, that suffering comes especially to those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. The psalmist tells us that suffering, or the, 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 the Bible tells us that suffering is used by God to show the reality of our faith. Isn't that exactly the, the description that Peter uses in 1 Peter 1.7? So that the tested genuineness of your faith will be displayed through suffering. We know that suffering, in fact, according to Scripture, we don't like to think this way in ministry. But, but suffering, according to Scripture, it displays the power of God in us. You remember this, this particular situation that the Apostle Paul has, as he records for us in 2 Corinthians 12, where he talks about this thorn in the flesh that he 
pled to the Lord to remove. And what is it that the Lord said? My grace is sufficient for you because my power is perfected in your weakness. And so Paul goes on to say, because of that, I'll boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses that that the power of God will be displayed in me. The Bible teaches us that God is with us in our suffering. And the Bible teaches us in passages that we like to keep on the back burner of our minds, that suffering is how God ordinarily causes us to grow. Let me remind you of what James says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Or or remember Paul's attitude towards suffering as he explains it in Romans chapter 5. We rejoice in our suffering. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, you enter the school of goodness. You say to the Lord, Lord, you are good. You have been good. Your goodness is the foundation of my being. Your goodness is the foundation of my salvation. And it's exactly as you said it was in your word. So teach me more of this. I want to walk in this. And you experience affliction. You experience people smearing you with lies. You experience being surrounded by those who care nothing of the Lord. And yet, and yet it's in that the psalmist says that God causes you to grow and displays his goodness in and through you. And you see, that's, that's the outcome that he describes in verses 71 and 72. He, he's, he's gone to this school. He's found out that what's actually on the curriculum is affliction. And at the end of it all, he says, that was good for me. Look at verse 71. It begins with that word good again, not reflected in the English. It is good for me that I was afflicted. Why? That I might learn your statutes. You're all here in some measure to learn the word of God, to learn the statutes of God, the commands of God, the teaching of God, the law of God. You're here to learn the Bible. You're here to learn about God himself. Well, the psalmist says, the way I learned those things was through affliction, which was good for me. He sees that his growth came through the goodness of affliction in his life. And look at the whole new set of values he displays in verse 72 because of this. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. And he's not just talking about the Bible in the abstract. He's not just talking about the fact that, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd pay anything to have this book in my hand, although no doubt he would have said that. But, but, but God's word and all that that entails is worth far more than anything else he could imagine. 
well, how is this possible? How is it possible that the psalmist moving through all of the things he moved through learns God, God's goodness and declares what he declares in verse 72? Well, the first answer we have to give is the answer that he gives in verse 65 and in verse 68. The psalmist would say, well, well the, the, the reason that's possible is because God is good and all that God does for me and in my life is, is good. And, and therefore, God's goodness allows me to declare verses 71 and 72. I think he would also answer, and he wouldn't see these as mutually exclusive, that it's not only God's goodness that enables him to declare these things, but it's it's God's word that enables him to declare these things. After all, where did he learn about the, the goodness of God in this sense? How did he learn all the details of God's goodness? Well, he says, it's according to your word that I learned all these things. He He might also answer using the language of verse 66, that it's God's goodness that's the foundation. It's God's word that's the foundation. And, and this comes to me through faith. He says in verse 66, I believe in your commandments. But I think we could say something else as well. Because I think we could look, we can look at the language of all of this, the language of this school of goodness, which involves affliction. And, and I hope your minds are immediately drawn as if by a magnet to Hebrews chapter 5. Because in Hebrews 5, what the writer to Hebrews tells us about Jesus as our great high priest is this. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And, and although he was a son, it says, he, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, de being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. John Owen puts it this way when he's reflecting on Hebrews 5. One special kind of obedience is intended here, he says, namely a submission to great, hard, and terrible things accompanied by patience and quiet endurance. This is what the psalmist has experienced. And through it all, what he's recognized in a deeper way is you are good and you do good. And he pleads with the Lord to teach him his statutes. Jesus summarized this in the way that we began in Mark chapter 10. No one is good but God alone. Starting from that premise, we also need to say that no one can be saved except by God's goodness and through his son, the perfect sacrifice. So the declaration of this psalm, the, the command, the, the imperative the instruction that the psalmist gives you is to learn goodness from the only one who is good in an absolute sense. Uh, learn goodness from God. And as you learn goodness from God, you need to believe, to trust Him. And as you trust Him, that means that He's going to 
cause you to suffer and therefore grow in your understanding of goodness. And in all of that, no doubt the psalmist in Psalm 119 would declare exactly what we read earlier in the Psalms. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray together. Lord, you are good. Your word is good. All your instruction is good for us, and the circumstances you bring into our lives are good for us, and you are at work for our good. We thank you that we can have such confidence in you. We thank you that we can look to you as the source of every good and perfect gift. And we thank you, perhaps most of all, that we can look to your son who suffered on our behalf and who now stands as the great high priest, sympathetic to us, interceding for us. And so we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.